Good morning and welcome to today's public affairs programming here on KNCI, KZZO, KYMX and KHTK. Operated by Bonneville International, I'm Cody Robinson. My first guest is Dr. Scott M. Mintz, Chief Eye Care Officer for United Healthcare Vision. He's here to discuss the impact of blue light exposure since many people work from home and our dependence on digital devices. Thanks for being with us. Could you introduce yourself and provide a little background on what you do? Sure. I'm uh, Dr. Scott Edmonds. I'm the Chief Eye Care Officer at United Healthcare. I'm a practicing optometrist in Philadelphia. I've been practicing for many years dealing with uh, patients with um, many different eye care problems. You're here today to talk about blue light exposure. And what is that exactly? Well, blue light is the uh, classification of light that's in the visible spectrum. So it's the part we see that we perceive as blue. It's a pretty wide range of blue color. But blue is high energy light, and uh, we know just above the blue spectrum is ultraviolet, which we know is damaging to both the skin and the eyes, and we've got protective uh, lotions for UV light for the skin and also protection for the eye. But we always thought visible blue light was safe. Recent uh, studies show that uh, the high-end blue light, certain very certain pieces of the wavelength spectrum can actually damage the retina or what we call phototoxic to the retina. Mm. The damage is not, is not, um, doesn't come up in the short term, but it changes the metabolism of the retina. So we're concerned about all this exposure leading to diseases like dry age-related macular degeneration that we see in adults, uh, elder adults, that we initially uh, contributed just to UV. And now we're concerned that part of that visible spectrum is also damaging the retina over a lifetime. And why are we talking about blue light exposure so much these days? I feel like I haven't even heard that. I didn't hear this term about five years ago. And then all of a sudden it's everywhere and people are wearing the blue light blocker glasses. Why do you think that is? Well, we know, first of all, that uh, blue light is the most common light that comes out of uh, computer screens, laptops, phones. Uh, and the pandemic has ushered in a really heavy use of these devices. Our whole life has gone digital. Uh, and so we see a lot of exposure to blue light. And given our concern with long-term eye health, as well as the short-term problems of something we call digital eye strain that comes from overstimulation from digital devices causing uh, short-term symptoms like headaches, uh, blurry uh Uh, red eyes or uh, kind of stiff shoulders from all that concentration on these close focusing blue light devices. So I know you already mentioned a few, but let's go over what are the short and long term health concerns that are linked to increased screen time? Well, the short-term issues are mostly discomfort, you know, red, scratchy eyes, difficulty uh, using the computer after extended periods of time, a decrease in production for people that are, that are production-based uh, at-home screen users. Uh, so those are kind of short-term discomforts. The long-term that we're worried about is this uh, damage to the retina that uh, we show, we clinically show in animal models that this certain level of blue light is phototoxic, uh, and we're concerned about the long-term effects of that kind of toxicity. So more studies need to be done? For sure. We don't have any long-term studies. It's it's a fairly new problem, but we know from studies from the 60s and 70s when the ozone layer thinned and we had a lot more exposure, you know, to uh, radiation from the sun that we started to see skin cancers and other issues. So we're sort of at the same turning point in human evolution where now we have not exposure from the sun, but all this blue light exposure. And some of these video games emit very high amounts of uh, of visible blue light with a very bright intensity. And we're just concerned that this is going to show up in the long term rather than the short term. uh, And we're trying to ward this off in a public health manner. Now, does blue light have the same effect on children? 
Yes, even more so in children. And of course, they don't often show the short-term disadvantage because they're pretty tolerant. But children tend to hold their uh, devices much closer to their eyes. So he, an adult usually holds things at 30 inches or so, which is our recommended you know, screen length. But kids who like to get up, especially to these handheld phones, you know, they're at two or three inches with these really bright lights. And they work on these phones with texting and social media. They're on them for hours on end. So we're concerned that they get the, the intensity is too close. Their optical elements, the cornea and lens in the young person, is really clear. So all that radiation goes right to the retina. In older people, lens changes and age-related changes to the eye block out some of that uh, radiation to the retina. But in a child, it's directly hitting the retina. So we're concerned that these are the kids, especially those that are susceptible, i.e. have a parent with macular degeneration or a grandparent uh, or are finger-scanned in light eye. Those people are at little more risk to this radiation uh, than uh, the rest of the population. So how can you leverage blue light blocking technology? So there's a number of ways we can prevent ourselves from having these problems. And so the first, uh, first some common sense things are what we call the 20-20-20 rule that says you should only look at your screens uh, for 20 minutes without a break. And the break is for only for 20 seconds. And the break is to look at an object 20 feet or further uh, to let the eyes focus, get away from the blue light radiation. And that 20-second break will improve uh, any type of screen use. But new technology, as you mentioned, is, is another key by getting either they're blue blocking glasses, and there's many forms of blue blocking blocking glasses, mm-hmm. or using the technology like the night mode on your laptop or on your computer that blocks out the blue light. Uh, and then some of the new computer manufacturers are actually building blue light blocking technology right into their digital dis- displays so that we don't have to really worry about external blocking. We're going to block it at the source by uh, the new computer systems that actually block that dangerous uh, wavelength of blue light. So why is it important for computer users to have an eye exam every year? Well, these symptoms that we get from, you know, again, from exposure to blue light and too much screen time and too much near activity can show up in a lot of different ways. And sometimes, you know, it's a dry eye problem or the glasses are out of focus or there's other medical problems, maybe uh, cataracts or other issues that are affecting vision. And sometimes it's just too much exposure to the blue light. So a trip to the eye doctor can weed that out for you to say, here's, in your case, here's some pathology that we're concerned about, or this is just exposure to blue light and here's some blue light protection and doctors can prescribe special glasses that block the blue light as well as provide optimal focus for computer use uh, and also rule out any pathology. So it's a sign and symptom that often gets ignored. Everybody figures their eyes are tired and sore and red from too much screen time. But in that, in fact, there may be a hidden eye disease that's uh, be, being masked by that symptom. Uh, and a trip to the eye doctor can weed that out and make your life a lot more comfortable. So for those who don't have the blue light blocker glasses or the new screens for your laptop or TV, could you go over one more time the 2020 rule? Sure. Um, so the 2020 rule is kind of a simple. We use that at United Healthcare for all of our eye doctors to recommend to patients as well as to our you know population in general. So, so it says that for every 20 minutes of screen time, you should take a 20-second break to look off into the distance at an object that's 20 feet away or further. So let your eyes unfocus, let the eye muscles straighten, so that get away from the blue radiation for only 20 seconds, and then you can go back to your screen work. If you if you meter those 20-minute uh, breaks uh, you know, for hours and hours of screen time, it'll be a lot more comfortable and safer for you to use your screen in that manner. And is there anything else you'd like to add about blue light expo- exposure? 
No, I think the only other piece I might add is parents need to watch kids because, again, young kids don't complain as much. But if you see your child squinting or blinking or, or you notice their eyes are kind of getting red rimmed, uh, you know, they may not tell you they're uncomfortable, but you should be aware of digital eye strain in children and get them to the eye exam, to their eye doctor to get a comprehensive exam and to, you know, uh, implement some of these safety rules, the 2020 rule or blue light blocking technology so that they can be safer. Great. Thank you. That was Dr. Scott Edmonds, Chief Eye Care Officer for United Healthcare Vision. If you would like more information on what we discussed today, please direct your correspondence to Public Affairs and Care of This Station. My next guest is Luez Marie Robles, Public Information Officer of the Sacramento YOLO Mosquito and Vector Control District, which provides mosquito and vector control services for residents using a proven integrated pest management approach. She's here to discuss World Mosquito Day, the diseases they transmit from bites, how to protect yourself, invasive species in our area and what to look out for, and ways the district can help. Thanks for being with us. Could you introduce yourself and provide a little background on what you do? Yes, so so my name is Luz Maria Robles. I'm the Public Information Officer with the Sacramento Yolo Mosquito and Vector Control District. I've been with the agency for 14 years, and it's my pleasure to be here today talking to you guys about how to fight the bite and stay safe from mosquitoes. Well, we're happy to have you here. So recently it was World Mosquito Day. Could you tell us about it? Why celebrate mosquitoes? Yeah, I know, right? People people don't usually think of mosquitoes as something to celebrate, right? Most right. people don't like mosquitoes. But, you know, you're right. World Mosquito Day was celebrated recently, and it actually aims at increasing awareness about responsible mosquito control, and especially when it comes to malaria. Um, this originated in 1897, and it was actually um, to commemorate the work, the research work that was done to be able to make that connection between malaria and mosquitoes. There was a researcher who, uh, his name was Donald Ross, and he was the one that was able to prove that malaria was indeed transmitted by female mosquitoes. So very important work that he did, and it also led to a lot of new preventive measures against malaria, which, as you know, malaria is probably the disease that affects most people around the world. So it was very important for, I guess, for World Mosquito Day to be established and for Basically, uh, the discussion of mosquito control and why it's so important to, you know, continue uh, for people to continue talking about it. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. So could you tell us some fun facts about mosquitoes? Yes. So so a lot of people don't know that, you know, mosquitoes have been around for hundreds of thousands of years and worldwide there's over 3,500 different species of mosquitoes. Oh, wow. So basically anywhere in the world that you might travel, you're sure to find a mosquito. Here in our area, meaning like the Sacramento and Yolo counties, we have about 24 different species of mosquitoes that come out at different times of the year. And obviously, you know, people notice mosquitoes when they're spending time outdoors, but there's actual, actually winter mosquitoes. Um, and d- different mosquitoes come from different habitats. So, so mosquitoes can breed in rice fields. They can breed in tree holes, agricultural areas. And of course, the ones that we're most concerned about are the ones that breed in people's backyards in any kind of stagnant water that might be uh, that might be in any kind of container such as a backyard um say a bucket a, a pet bowl kids toys things like that but um you know just in terms of where they we have a lot of different varieties of mosquitoes that people should be aware about people always ask why you know why certain people are more attractive to mosquitoes than others and why people get bitten more mm-hmm. and you know one thing is mosquitoes are attracted to scent so technically you know as we're out and about um, mosquitoes are attracted to our smell primarily our co2 or our breath 
So, um, you know, as we're as we're spending time outdoors, maybe if you're going on a walk and you're a little bit sweaty, or maybe you're wearing a free lotion or a, some kind of a nice smelling shampoo, that's how you're constantly attracting mosquitoes to you. And some people are naturally more attractive to mosquitoes than others, but you know, it's primarily based on scent that mosquitoes can actually pick up on pick up on your smell and then hone in on their victim. And then one other thing that people don't know is that only female mosquitoes bite. Um, oh. Yeah. So even in the animal kingdom, us ladies tend to not be the very nice ones, maybe. Um, but yes, <laughs> only female mosquitoes bite. And the reason that happens is because female mosquitoes need to lay eggs. So that they need the protein in their blood to be able to lay those eggs. And the male mosquitoes, they primarily feed on nectar from, you know, from plants. So they do help a little bit with pollination. All things yeah. I didn't know. Let's talk <laughs> about the mosquito life cycle. Could you tell me about that? Yes. So one thing that is really important for people to understand is that mosquitoes, before they're actually flying around, they actually start their life in water. So, Mosquitoes have a four-stage life cycle, and mosquitoes basically, female mosquitoes lay their eggs on top of the water, and they can lay between 50 to 100 eggs at, you know, at a time, and they can lay eggs two to three times per week. So depending on the species of mosquitoes, um, you know, they can lay either, they can either lay individual eggs or in a raft um, that kind of looks like a little clump of dirt. So mosquitoes are laid on top of the water, then they hatch into something called a larva or a wiggler. From a larva, they go into a pupa or like a mosquito cocoon, and then from there, they emerge as adults. That whole life cycle, you know, in the peak of summer, like right now, it could take as little as four to seven days. So that means that in just one short week, you can have a lot of mosquitoes breeding. But very important to know, whenever I'm out out and about in the community, most people don't know that mosquitoes breed in water and Um, You know, that it's very easy to get rid of them when, you know, if you just dump outside in the water and there happens to be eggs in there, you can easily get rid of them much quicker and faster than if they're flying around. So that's one of the main messages that I really want to hone in on right now, that preventing mosquitoes is, you know, by draining standing water around your home is the best way to get rid of mosquitoes. So when is mosquito season? So mosquito season, I mean, even though we have mosquitoes year round, uh, primarily Uh, You know, it depends on temperature. So as soon as it starts to get warm, say around April or May, you know, we start to see more and more mosquitoes. Obviously, at that time is when, you know, it's springtime, people are spending more time outdoors. So you would tend to notice more mosquitoes around you also. But, you know, the peak of mosquito season is probably like June, July, August. So we're in the middle of it now. And then once temperatures really start to decline, say by October, then that's when we really see populations of mosquitoes really decline. So how long do mm-hmm. they typically last? Um, you know, it depends on their species. So some mosquitoes can usually live a couple of weeks, whereas some mosquitoes can actually hibernate and live through the winter or live through a, a few months. Primarily, it's the females that are able to do that, though. Uh, males typically live only about 10 days, whereas the females can actually live a lot longer, which is Actually, not a very good thing for us, especially because they're the only ones that are able to bite. Right. So why is controlling mosquitoes so important? Well, controlling mosquitoes is extremely important because, as you know, mosquitoes can transmit a variety of diseases. A lot of people don't know that mosquitoes are actually the world's deadliest animal. And mosquitoes are responsible for more deaths around the world. Uh, more than any other animal. So it's very important that we're able to control these responsibly and that we're doing everything that we can uh, to, one, one, prevent 
prevent mosquitoes from breeding and also preventing mosquito bites. As an agency, a lot of people don't know that there's a mosquito vector control district that, you know, we're charged with protecting public health. And our main mission is to make sure that we're reducing those mosquito populations so that we're also protecting the health of all of our residents. What should we know about mosquito bites and some of the diseases they transmit? Yes. So mosquitoes can transmit a variety of diseases. Um, some of the more, uh, I guess the more well-known diseases would be malaria, dengue, chikungunya, or Zika. Here in our area, the biggest or the most prevalent disease that we have in California and even in the United States, that continues to be West Nile virus. That's a disease that came to California in about 2003. But ever since then, it's, it's here to stay. And you know, the, the two species that can transmit West Nile virus are the ones that are most prominent in our area. So unfortunately, I think West Nile virus is something that's not going to go away. And we're, we always need to be vigilant and taking the proper precautions to ensure mosquito bites. And then, of course, you know, make sure that we are uh, staying healthy and that we're not contracting West Nile virus. So could you tell us some symptoms of West Nile virus? Yes. So, so, so West Nile virus, so 80% of people that have the disease don't don't have, get any symptoms or they, they're they what we call asymptomatic. Yeah. But say 20% of people develop what we call West Nile virus fever. So when you have headaches, fever, fatigue, maybe some pain around your lymph nodes. Um, and then 1 in 150 people develop a very severe type of West Nile virus when you actually get like inflammation of your brain. And these are the cases that could actually lead to, you know, be, being in a coma or being paralyzed um, or even lead to death, of course, which, you know, would be very sad. And it's unfortunate to think that, you know, just by the bite of an infected mosquito that some people can become very, very ill. But, you know, it's definitely something for us to keep, um, you know, keep in mind. Um, West Nile virus, as I said, is the most prominent disease in the United States and in California. But like, say, malaria, that's responsible for more than 400 deaths every year. And dengue fever is also a disease that's very prevalent and perhaps not in the United States, but definitely in other countries where a lot of people travel to. So, um, you know, very important that we that we have these uh, that we're thinking about mosquito prevention as we're you know traveling um, and making sure that we're preventing mosquito bites. Are there any cures or treatments for West Nile virus? <laughs> Unfortunately, there is not. So the best prevention is obviously preventing mosquito bites, which is why we always talk about the importance of wearing a good mosquito repellent or taking the proper precautions such as wearing long sleeves and pants or, first of all, ensuring that you're not breeding mosquitoes around your own property. We always make it a point to tell people that mosquito control is a is a partnership between you know, residents and the community and, of course, our district. But it's very important that people do their part in ensuring that they're not breeding mosquitoes, especially on their own property. You know, as a district, we know where the agricultural areas are or, you know, the, the big areas that might be producing mosquitoes. But we can't be in everybody's backyard, which is why it's so important that at least once a week people do their part and look around their yard and drain any stagnant water that might be producing mosquitoes. Got it. Are there other ways to protect yourself from mosquito bites? Well, the, uh, mosquito repellent is really the gold standard in ensuring that you're not uh, getting bitten by mosquitoes. Mm -hmm. So anytime you spend time outdoors, it's very important that you, you know, that you wear an effective mosquito repellent and that you do everything that you can to ensure that you're not being bitten. So let's talk about invasive mosquitoes. How are they different mm -hmm. than traditional mosquitoes found in the area? 
Yes. So invasive mosquitoes, these are mosquitoes that, uh, as their name implies, are not native to California. They actually came, they started to become established, first of all, in Southern California in about 2011. And they've been traced back to a shipment of tires or a shipment of lucky bamboo plants. So what makes these mosquitoes a little bit different than our than our normal traditional mosquitoes here is that these are aggressive day biting mosquitoes that primarily feed. Um, you know they can they feed on they prefer to feed on people and they can also grow both indoors and outdoors. Um, they they also they have a very short flight range and they one thing that makes them very difficult to control is that once they're established in a given area. They're very difficult to, first of all, detect and to control. Um, they, they lay eggs individually along the sides of containers, and then their eggs can actually, um, they, they can survive in a dry form. So they can survive the, in an egg stage um, throughout the winter, even if they're dry. And then once they're covered again in water, then that's when they lar- the larvae begin to hatch. So these mosquitoes can also transmit a variety of diseases such as Zika, dengue, or chikungunya. So new diseases that you know that uh, are not transmitted by our by our regular mosquitoes that are normally uh, found in our area. So that's why they're they're such a big concern, and we're always trying to, or you know, we would like for people to know if they're being bitten by daytime biting mosquitoes. Where have they been detected in our area? These invasive mosquitoes. So they were first detected in our area in 2019 in the area of Citrus Heights. Uh, that was the first detection ever within district boundaries. But then last year um, in 2020, we also discovered them for the first time in Yolo County in the city of Winters. Um, and to date, we still have uh, a lot of houses where we're detecting these invasive mosquitoes. And then also in the Arden Arcade area, unfortunately, in Sacramento County. We have a very robust surveillance program that is constantly setting out traps, looking for these mosquitoes in different areas of both of our counties. But to date, the biggest uh, populations are being found in Winters and then the Arden Arcade area of Sacramento County. What are some of the innovative strategies being considered by the district to control invasive mosquitoes? You know, these mosquitoes, they behave very differently than our norm, than our traditional mosquitoes. And, you know, the district feels like it's very necessary to enhance a lot of its surveillance and control operations. And where there's a lot of emergent technology that's currently being examined to be able to control these invasive mosquitoes. And one of those are called sterile insect techniques. So basically, these are controlled techniques where they're um, releasing sterile males um, that are released into given areas to be able to uh, mate with local populations, the female species. And then once the sterile males um, mate with the local females, then the resulting eggs will not hatch. Basically, you know, the end result is that mosquito populations decline. And it's important to be able to examine these new technologies as part of ensuring that mosquito control districts have the most effective tools to be able to protect public health. So these are, you know, there's different strategies that are being considered, but they're, uh, they all fall under what we call the sterile insect techniques. And these, these techniques have been used widely by other, other agencies, such as the Food and Ag Administration and other agencies to control other, like, agricultural types of pests. But now they're being also considered for mosquito control. Got it. 
So what are some tips and recommendations for preventing mosquitoes around the home? Yes. So, so as a homeowner, it's very important, as I mentioned earlier, that, you know, mosquito control is a collaborative effort. And we really want to um, drive the message home that we can't be in everybody's backyard. So we would love for people to really at least once a week look around their yard and inspect for any kind of stagnant water that might be uh, that might be in in buckets, in wheelbarrows, maybe kids' toys or, or the plant saucers. Anything that can hold water for more than a few days can and will become a mosquito breeding source. So it's very important that. Um, you know, that we are constantly doing our part to inspect our yard. The invasive mosquitoes, they can breed in as little as a teaspoon of water, if you can imagine that. So, you know, making sure that your that your sprinklers are not filling containers that might be in your yard or discarding old tires, um, covering your rain barrels, cleaning your clogged rain gutters, um, making sure that you're really um, cleaning, say, your bird baths or your fountains to make sure that you're not breeding mosquitoes on your property. That would be, you know, the very best thing that you can do um, in helping us to control mosquitoes. Could you tell us again about the resources and various free district services offered to all residents? Yes. So a couple of different things. So a lot of people often have, say, a horse trough or an ornamental pond or a fountain, um, and we offer free mosquito-eating fish. They're, they're actually called mosquito fish. And we give them free to residents that might have a pond or a fountain um, that's maybe not being, that the water is just not really being rotated. So these fish are a form of, of what we call biological control, or they help us control mosquitoes naturally because they feed on mosquito larvae. So if you have one of these ponds at home or a fountain, you can call us and one of our district uh, technicians will come out and give you some of these free mosquito fish. We also offer... Uh, free home service inspections. If you notice that you're having a lot of mosquitoes, you don't know where they're coming from, you can call the district and a technician will come out and provide a free assessment, you know, provide you some, they'll look around your yard and provide you some recommendations as to what you can do to prevent mosquitoes around your home. If we find mosquitoes, we might also do what we call a barrier treatment, so do a spraying around your yard. And all of these are free of charge. We also offer free mosquito repellent wipes for anybody having like an outdoor evening event. Often the cities or the county um, agencies, they provide, say, like movies in the park or concerts in the park, any kind of outdoor activity. Um, we, we have the free mosquito repellent wipes. So if you're, a, say, a golf course or a winery or you know, an establishment that has an outdoor seating area for guests, um, we offer these free mosquito repellent wipes that you can just request. Um, also, if you have, say, a community organization like a Rotary Club, a Kiwanis Club, a Neighborhood Association, I'm happy to come on and do a free presentation to be able to provide information on how to protect yourself from mosquitoes. Oh, that's fantastic. I love that. Where can listeners get more info on what we discussed today? Yes. So uh, one big thing you know, that people also want to know about is people want to know where when and if we're doing any kind of treatments in their area, say any kind of ground spraying. Uh, in parks or their neighborhoods so that people can sign up to get um, email notifications of when any of our treatments are going to be taking place. And they can do that by visiting our website at fightthebite.net. So altogether, fightthebite.net, or they can call us at 800-429-1022. So when you go there, you'll find information about all of our district services. You can sign up for updates um, or request any of the services that we've discussed. So fightthebite.net. 
Great. Thank you. That was Luz Maria Robles, Public Information Officer of the Sacramento Yolo Mosquito and Vector Control District. If you would like more information on what we discussed today, visit fightthebite.net. That's fightthebite.net. If you have questions regarding this program, please direct a correspondence to Public Affairs and Care of This Station. My next guest is Charlotte Mitchell, Executive Director of the California Farmland Trust, which helps protect valuable farmland here in the state. She's here to discuss how and why they protect the farmland, how you can get involved, and their upcoming race to slow the pace on September 25th. Thanks for being with us. Could you introduce yourself and provide a little background on what you do? I am Charlotte Mitchell. I'm the Executive Director at the California Farmland Trust. We're a nonprofit organization that works with willing landowners who are farmers that wish to protect their farmland forever for the next generation and, and really in perpetuity forever to ensure that that land continues to grow the food and fiber that we are uh, accustomed to seeing here in California. I love that. What's the history of the trust? In approximately the year of 2000, there were four different groups, three land trusts and, um, and a, a group of interested landowners, one in Merced County, one in Stanislaus, San Joaquin, and Sacramento. And those farmers and farm ladies, actually, um, came to the kitchen table to say, we need to do something about the loss of farmland and the pressure that we get from developers and urbanize, urbanizing efforts because it's really tough. We need to continue to produce food and uh, we need to ensure that this plan gets passed down to our next generation, whether that's the next generation of that family farming it or another, you know, family comes in and wants to continue to farm. So these groups came together and formed uh, the Central Valley Farmland Trust. They figured they'd be stronger together uh, with the same mission of protecting uh, productive irrigated farmland in the Central Valley. So they formed the Central Valley Farmland Trust. And then in the year 2017, um, the organization, another organization in Contra Costa County reached out to us and said, we are doing, you know, work here in this area of protecting irrigated farmland. Um, but we know that we can be stronger if we joined forces. So same mission and vision. And we went through another merger. And out of that, the two board of directors decided, um, you know, we will change our name to the California Farmland Trust. And so here we are today, um, accelerating throughout the Central Valley as our primary service area, Sacramento down to Fresno, with the goal of, of, again, really protecting those lands that are very important to California and California's economy and our ability to choose local foods. And uh, we have to do that in order to, you know, we have to protect the farmland that produces those food for us. So we have those choices. Yeah, absolutely. Do you know how many farms are a part of the trust? So as of today, uh, we have 81 uh, different farms protecting over 17,600 acres throughout that service area. We've got several that we're working on right now that will that will close. Those transactions will close at the end of uh, this year into next and several more in the pipeline. The very unique and interesting and wonderful thing is that is that we have a long list of interested landowners that wish to put their land under this 
uh, agricultural conservation easement, which is the tool that we use. And um, and that's really satisfying and gratifying to us, knowing that yeah. there's a lot of interest there. And it's just a matter of putting all the funding pieces and all the transactional things. It's it's like a real estate transaction. It takes it takes time and, and effort to get through the process. Um, but we do have that that long list of folks that really see the importance of continuing uh, to keep agriculture viable in the state. Good. So how does the trust go about protecting the farmland? So we start out with, um, again, those interested landowners that are, are willing to protect that land and, and go through the process. And then it, what we're doing is uh, purchasing the development right, which is one of the sticks of a bundle of rights that a landowner has uh, for owning property. And we're purchasing that one right from them and and we then uh, utilize that agricultural conservation easement, which is recorded uh, on the land and it goes with the land. And but the landowner still owns the land and is able to make uh, you know any decisions on management of, of farming operations. They're just telling us that I will never develop or cover over that productive soil, that I'll continue to farm and do exactly what I'm doing today. And these these transactions are in perpetuity. So it lasts a long time. And it's a very big decision that a landowner has to make because we're not sure what tomorrow will bring, let alone 100 years from now or longer. So we want to make sure that we're working on properties that have good soils, that they have water, they will be able to stay in agricultural, a viable agricultural unit forever. So it's it's a delegate balancing act with a lot of conversation. Um, we put together all the funding pieces. So a lot of our supporters and donors that really appreciate the fact that they can go to the local grocery store and pick out California grown produce are ones that are really, you know, contributing to the organization to ensure that we can do these kinds of transactions with these folks um, in, in perpetuity. We also, you know, rely on, uh, the California Department of Con- uh, Conservation that has a good funding program. The governor, um, both Governor Brown and Governor Newsom, realized that we do need to ensure that there's housing and that there's infrastructure to take care of our growing urban population. And we agree with that 100%. We need to make sure cities can grow and provide for housing and other ancillary entities. But there's also fertile farmland. So we have to find that unique balance of of planning that will build on those lesser quality soils, protect the good quality soils so that California can can, again, remain producing food that we eat here locally. And why is it important to you or the trust in general to protect family farms or just farmland in general? I've uh, I, I've grew, grown up on a farm. I'm a third generation farmer. I married a fifth generation farmer. We're raising two boys that are the sixth generation. So taking it back very personally, I I want to ensure that if my two boys wish to go back into agriculture and carry on the family farm, that they have the choice to do that. And they are interested in ag, and um, and they do. And so there's there's other young people out there and a generation that do appreciate working the land. And it's a tough job. It's not no longer bibbed overalls and a pitchfork. You've got to be an agronomist. You have to be a chemist. You have to be an, a, an attorney. You have to be an accountant. You have to have 
a whole suite of knowledge and to be able to farm today, uh, unlike, you know, how we did with our forefathers, you know, 100 years ago. So, so that's, from a personal, you know, advantage, and uh, that's where I I really see that this young generation we need to provide those opportunities for them if they choose to take that. And the only way to do it is to ensure that we're thoughtful about how we go about protecting again those those very viable pieces of land that are producing you know food in a variety of ways. Absolutely. Let's talk more about the education and outreach the trust does. So we know that our mission is important and um, we need to teach all all sorts of people, not just young people in third, fourth and fifth grade, which is where, what the curriculum that we have developed does. Everybody else, all our communities need to know that from the Orange You Glad, we have farmland educational activities that we partnered with Rayleigh's and the California Agriculture in the Classroom Foundation. It goes through a process in which students will be cutting up an orange and we guide them through that process. And what's left out of this orange after they cut and cut and cut is a very thin piece of the rind, the orange rind, that says only 3% of the world's surface is capable of producing food. And if you think about it, you take a whole orange and you cut it in force and you cut it in force again, and then you take away that small layer of the rind. And that is the only portion of our soils that are capable of producing food. It's, it's a really meaningful um, activity that really kind of draws home of why we need to be thoughtful about planning for the future and uh, doing you know, the protection of farmland, which we do as an organization and, and to help perpetuate that. Sure. Now, does your organization accept donations? We do. We're a nonprofit 501c3. Our California Farmland Trust website is pretty easy to navigate. It tells the story. It, it showcases the people of who we are, the lands that we've protected. And of course, there's a donate button there. And they can make uh, any kind of donation, a one-time or repetitive reoccurrence. And 96 cents of every dollar that we have goes back to that farmland conservation. And so we're a um, um, local-based, our office is local here in Sacramento region. And again, um, you know, we're very much thankful for our supporters because it really has allowed us to accelerate over the last few years the, the ability to go ahead and, and really do some meaningful work throughout this region and throughout the valley where it's really needed. Oh, good. Are there volunteer opportunities? There is. There is volunteer opportunities. We have uh, uh, committees that have, that uh, um, those that have special talent can contribute to helping further our organization through an expertise. We also have an event coming up on September 25th. It's the Race to Slow the Pace a 5 and 10K run out at Bokish Vineyards in Lockford, uh, and a way to um, donate your time there and helping us with registration and course. Or if we have some walkers or runners, a beautiful opportunity to walk or run through the vineyard, have a glass of wine and paella afterwards. Mm. Um, it is truly a rewarding experience, even if you're not a runner. A, a, a 5K walk is 
is pretty easy. We've got some great some great opportunities that will be happening that day on Sunday morning. That, again, is on our website, too, at www.cafarmtrust.org. And, um, and that will be a very fun event that they can either participate or volunteer their time in that morning as well. Oh, good. And what other fundraising do you do throughout the year? We do Big Day of Giving uh, in the Sacramento region, so be looking for that in May. Um, we have our year-end uh, giving plan as well, and all those are all our, are on our website as well. So um, really, we, we can take donations or that volunteer time uh, throughout the year, and really a lot of that is, is recognized on our website, and uh, there's ways to contact us directly, and I'm happy to assist anybody who has a, a level of interest in, in wanting to make an impact in, in their local uh, region about where our food security and, and uh, how we're ensuring that we have that moving forward. And if someone wanted to put their land in the trust, how would they go about that? They can go to our website, definitely. There's the, My email is right there, along with our phone number. It's very easy to get a hold of us. Um, I can talk to talk to that person, uh, you know, as much and as little as they want in terms of describing what the process is. We're very much transparent. And in my perspective is that we, you know, really do a lot of education, a lot of discussion. It's just not, not a one person's uh, decision, one landowner's decision, but it really involves the entire family as well. And so um, we want to make sure that there's a lot of um knowledge and just describing the process and what it means afterwards. And and really nothing has changed that happens today. And they just, uh, you know, want to continue to keep farming. And this is a great tool to be able to do that. Great. Let's go over the details of the race to slow the pace again. When is it? Where? Where can they sign up? And anything else they need to know? The race to slow the pace is on September 25th, Sunday morning at Bokish Vineyards in Lodi or the Lockford community area, and they can go to our website at cafarmtrust.org to register or to volunteer. Uh, You can do either one. It's a 5 and 10K run. Uh, It starts at 8.30 in the morning. Uh, Brunch will be served with a glass of wine for everybody and a dish of paella. Uh, It's a great way to support uh, the organization as well as have a lot of fun. It is a it is a walk or run completely through the vineyard mm-hmm. and um, a beautiful vineyard there with a winery and uh, and so our website has those full details of registering to participate as a runner or walker as well as participating as a volunteer and they'll be able to find both of those uh, right there on our website. Great. That was Charlotte Mitchell, Executive Director of the California Farmland Trust. If you would like more information on what we discussed today, visit cafarmtrust.org. That's cafarmtrust.org. If you have questions regarding this program, please direct a correspondence to Public Affairs and Care of This Station. My next guest is Panama Bartholomew with the Building Decarbonization Coalition. He's here to discuss the Switches On campaign, which encourages homeowners to swap out their gas appliances for clean, environmentally friendly electric appliances. He'll discuss how much money you can save over time, rebates, and how you can find local vetted trained technicians to install them for you. Thanks for being with us. Could you introduce yourself and provide a little background on what you do? Thank you, Cody. My name is Panama Bartholomew, and I'm the director of an organization called the Building Decarbonization Coalition. And the coalition is a group 
of different organizations that are working to get pollution out of buildings. Um, We're made up of utilities and the manufacturers of heating equipment like furnaces and water heaters, uh, architects and installers, local governments, and other nonprofits that are all working together to try to make sure that we can move pollution out of our buildings and be able to still provide heat in our lifestyle without um, any of the attendant uh, pollution that comes from it. Great. So right now you're spearheading a campaign called The Switch Is On. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, thank you for asking, Cody. The Switch Is On campaign is really a what we're trying to do is a go-to resource for consumers to be able to find out anything that they need to know about um, how to electrify their homes. Um, home electrification is going to be playing a much bigger role over the next decade in both uh, new home construction as well as existing home renovations. And when I talk about home electrification, I'm basically talking about um, your furnace, your water heater, your stove, and your clothes dryer. And what our organization focuses on is how do we get rid of the gas versions of those because those are causing a lot of pollution in homes and in communities, and instead moving those over to running on um, electricity. We have a really clean electricity grid in California, and so it makes a lot of sense, um, both from a pollution perspective as well as a saving money perspective, uh, to be switching over, um, switching those appliances over to electricity. And so people have a lot of questions about it, though, you know, like, why is electricity better? And what will this do to my bills? And where can I find a contractor that will actually help me on this? And are the rebates available? And so we wanted to try to answer all those questions through one big campaign. And that campaign is called The Switch is On. And you can see the campaign website is switchison.org. And there you can find all the answers to all the questions you might have about why and how you'd switch over to electrification, a pre-screened list of contractors that are going to help you down this journey, um, a list of all of the rebates available to you based on your zip code, and then one-on-one advisors that can help walk you through any questions or the peculiar uniquenesses about your house, be able to help you on it. So that's what the Switches On campaign is. Great. So how does this campaign benefit homeowners? That's a great question, Cody. So one of the key things about um, electrification is that the technologies that are available for heating your home, uh, for heating your water, for heating your food are incredibly efficient. These are amazing technologies that are available right now. They're about three to four times more efficient than your best-in-class gas alternative to heating those spaces or that water. And so the real benefit to homeowners is you you have an opportunity to cut your monthly utility bills uh, by installing these electric versions of those appliances, as well as reducing pollution in your home and in your community. Um, One of the things that people don't realize is we've done an excellent job about reducing smog coming from power plants and coming from cars in California over 40 years of work. We haven't done that much on buildings. And right now, burning gas in buildings is producing five times more smog than all of our power plants in the state and twice as much smog as all of our cars in the state. And so electrifying your home is a great way to be both reducing pollution inside your home and protecting your family and your children, um, as well as reducing that pollution within our communities. I didn't know all that. That's really good information. So what financial incentives are there? 
Well, we have been working a lot in California about getting financial incentive programs available for homeowners. And the good news is there are now um, statewide incentives to be able to help buy down the cost of installing a, um, a air conditioning and heating system, um, a water heating system, and in some areas, even a brand new stove. And so if you go to the website, switcheson.org, and you go to the what rebates are available to me, you can type in your zip code, and all those programs are going to pop up. Right now, you can find programs that can give you anywhere from $2,500 to $5,000 off the cost of replacing your furnace um, with what's called a heat pump um, that provides both cooling and heating. It's basically an air conditioner that can run in reverse. So an air conditioner, you think of it, is it really it's pumping cold air into your into your house. A heat pump is an air conditioner that can run in reverse and pump hot air um, into your house oh. as well as cold air. And so you can get anywhere from $2,500 to $5,000 off right now in California through that program. You can get about $2,000 off of the cost of a water heater, a heat pump water heater um, in your home. And then in certain areas of the state, such as in Sacramento area, um, and in the Bay Area, you can have about $500 off the cost of buying a new um, magnetic induction stove um, to be able to have that in your house. But if you want any of that information and details about the technology, the best place to go is to our website, switcheson.org. You can see all this information and find access to the rebates. Fantastic. So what about appliances? What appliances can people switch and where should they start? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, the two biggest consumers of gas and the two biggest impacts on your utility bill um, are your water heater and your furnace. And it's a big impact this year because gas prices have increased significantly this year. Um, gas prices are up 90% over last year um, due to a global uh, shortage in production as well as uh, here in America, we're choosing to export a lot of our natural gas out of the country. And so the opportunity to electrify is really one to start to get away from these wild price swings of gas, which is really a global market, and have our heating system rely more upon a local um, system that we here in California control, our electricity system. We were able to stabilize electricity prices for the last 40 years. And so the key appliances for a homeowner's bill is really your furnace and your water heater. And the technologies are to replace those are something called heat pumps. And heat pumps have been around for almost a century. Um, they're amazing technologies, and it basically uses the same technology as your refrigerator. Um, your refrigerator uses a, a gas, a refrigerant. Um, and if you look on the back of your refrigerator, that's what all those coils are, is a refrigerant running through there. And then a condenser to be able to help to use that refrigerant to transfer heat from one area to another. You can use that same methodology to transfer heat in and out of a home or to transfer heat into a water tank to be able to heat your water. And so you think of it as a refrigerator, if you put your hand on the back of your refrigerator and you feel those coils and they're always warm, that's because the condenser and the refrigerant's extracting heat out of the refrigerator and then putting it into your kitchen or wherever you have your refrigerator. And that same technology is used in heat pumps. And the beauty is, the reason why it's so efficient is instead of burning gas to create heat for your water heater or your furnace, what you're doing is you're using electricity just to run that condenser 
and potentially a fan. And so you're using just a fraction of the energy that you would to produce the same heat that you want in your home or your uh, water heater um, compared to a gas version of that. Three to four times more efficient um, on a heat pump to do that rather than a gas. So how much would you say it costs to electrify a home? Yeah, it's, you know, every home's different. So I'm going to speak in some generalities here. Um, but the California Building Industry Association, um, that's the trade association, trade association of home builders um, here in California, did a big report on this back in 2018. And what they found is that the appliances generally cost the same. So a heat pump compared to a full heating, ventilation, and air conditioning system it cost, the appliance costs about the same here in California. A heat pump water heater compared to an on-demand gas um, water heater costs about the same, a stove, et cetera. Um, the issues, and so that works for new construction. For new construction, you're not going to have any kind of a cost increase or notice any cost differential. For existing buildings, it really comes down to the condition of your building, um, some of the wiring in that building, and then the age of your building and whether or not you need to upgrade some of the infrastructure and your electrical panel and some of that wiring. But generally, when somebody goes out and says, I want to replace my air conditioning and heating system with a heat pump, um, they're going to get quotes back that are the same as whether they're going to put in a gas furnace with an air conditioner or if they're going to put in a heat pump. If they're going to replace their on-demand water heater, it's going to be this about the same cost. Um, for a heat pump water heater. What it's really going to come down to is how, per, how ready your house is. And the good news is that these new incentive programs that are rolling out in California actually are covering some of the costs of those electrical upgrades, covering some of the costs of upgrading your electrical panel and your wiring. And so if you just go to the website, switcheson.org, you can see all the access to those rebates that will help you build out some of that, some of that infrastructure. Well, that's really good to know. It's funny because I'm a new homeowner and I have to switch out all of that stuff. Like my inspector told me to, and I'm like, yes, I'm going to look for rebates. (laughs) Might as well do it the right way, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. And there's no better time to do it. I mean, we we have um, just just over $500 million in rebate programs that are available to homeowners right now. And just yesterday, actually, uh, Governor Newsom proposed a new billion-dollar infusion. Uh, for home home electrification as well. So there's uh, there's no better time for people to do this. Why is induction cooking better than gas cooking, other than its environmental benefit? That's a great question. Um, the truth is that induction cooking blows the doors off of gas stoves. It's three times more powerful and twice as good a control as your best-in-class gas stove. Uh, three years ago, the Sacramento Municipal Utility District and the Food Service Technology Center in San Ramon did a big study comparing uh, magnetic induction stoves to old-style electric stoves, radiant, you think of with that old coil and gas stoves. And what they and they compared the power and the control and the air emissions and the efficiency. And with the, what came back was that magnetic induction stoves, again, just below the doors off of a gas stove. The two things that chefs care about the most really are power, you know, how quickly you can get food to the temperature you want, and then control. Um, How can you change uh, the amount of heat that's going into the food to be able to get it to exactly where you want to prepare the dish that you're wanting? And so for those two issues, magnetic induction is incredibly, incredibly 
uh, powerful compared to a gas stove. But the beauty is it's also far safer. It's safer because you don't have a flame in your house. And if you have young children uh, like I do in the house or older relatives that you may not trust around a gas stove, you don't have to worry about that with a magnetic induction. As soon as you take the pot off of the stove, um, that stove turns off and you don't have that same latent heat in there that you have from a gas stove on the grill um, that you put your pans on top of. It's also safer from an indoor air quality perspective. Um, there is an amazing amount of pollutants that come off of our gas stoves. Nitrogen oxides, carbon monoxide, and formaldehyde are all components of burning gas. And I don't know about you, but I've never been good about turning on the, uh, the vent over my stove unless I'm burning something. But the reality is if you have a gas stove, you're always burning something, even if you're doing a good job with the food, because you're burning gas and you're producing those pollutants right. um, inside homes. And a study in 2014 from the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratories um, estimated that about half of Californians are being exposed to levels of pollutants that, if found outside, would be illegal under the Clean Air Act. We're being exposed to illegal levels of pollutants inside our homes from burning gas. And so the beauty of a magnetic induction is the use of electricity. And the only thing you're being exposed to is the, the burning of your food. Great. That's good to know. So where can people find more information about what we discussed today? I know you already mentioned the website once, but let's go over that again. Yeah, absolutely. So the Switches On campaign is a go-to resource for any questions you have about building electrification, um, why you should do it, um, how you can do it, and then what are the resources to help you do it. It has a searchable database of a bunch of contractors in your area based on your zip code who can help you down this journey. It has all of the rebates available to you to buy down the cost of these technologies so that it makes it cheaper than the gas alternatives. Um, based on your zip code, and it has one-to-one -one advisors that can hop on the phone with you and talk to you about these technologies and how to go about accessing them, though. So it's on the Switches On website. SwitchesOn.org has all the information you need about this transition. Great. And is there anything else you'd like to add about what we discussed today? Um, the beauty is that these technologies, not only do they save you money, not only do they reduce pollution, but it's actually a really big quality of life improvement. Um, the quality of heat that's provided from a heat pump, um, time and again, people, when they put these into their homes, they're really impressed by the overall comfort of it. There's a, there's a general consistent comfort level um, rather than the on-off blast of a gas furnace. And the beauty of many heat pump technologies is it also acts as a filter, which we increasingly need during California's fire seasons. Um, when we have smoke in the air, these heat pumps can actually filter out um, smoke toxins so you can still get air conditioning even during the smokiest times. And so it's going to be a real benefit as we increasingly move into a reality of, uh, of smoke in the fall season here in California. Go to switcheson.org and um, hopefully we can help you down your electrification journey. Great. Thank you. That was Panama Bartholomew with the Building Decarbonization Coalition. If you would like more information on the Switches On campaign, visit switcheson.org. That's switcheson.org. If you have questions regarding this program, please direct your correspondence to Public Affairs and Care of This Station. Attention men under the age of 35. You know what really impresses the ladies? When a guy has a few drinks and later gets pulled over for buzz driving. 
I could cost you around $10,000 in fines, legal fees, and increased insurance rates. There goes let's grab dinner and a movie. Oh, I know. You drive more carefully when you're buzzed. You've proven that hundreds of times. A woman admires that kind of confidence. And you've practiced how to speak if a cop does pull you over. Slowly, clearly, and politely like, Good evening, officer. A woman admires that kind of foresight. And what woman doesn't find it adorable that you call it buzzed even though the law calls it drunk? You could kiss $10,000 goodbye, along with any chance of having a girlfriend. Because nothing says, I'm a catch, more than a guy who lives in his parents' basement and calls it my place. Buzzed, busted, and broke. Because buzz driving is drunk driving. A message from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Dr. Anita Chandra with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. To keep your family healthy and safe, it's important to be ready if disasters happen. Develop a family communication plan. Make sure your family, including your children, know how to reach each other. Make a kit with first aid supplies, medicine, medical records, and comforting things for your child. Finally, talk about what to do when emergencies happen, like streets flooding, a power outage, or a fire. For more, visit HealthyChildren.org.